We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in Chinese Studies. Today we will be talking about Lena Henningsen's Cultural Revolution Manuscripts, unofficial entertainment fiction from 1970s China, which was published with Palgrave Macmillan in 2020. The book is a study of shou chaoben, or handwritten fiction, that entertained Chinese readers throughout the, quote, long 1970s, a period spanning the Cultural Revolution and its immediate aftermath in the late 70s and early 1980s. These manuscripts, copies of otherwise unavailable, often foreign fiction and poetry, as well as original novels and poems, were, to quote the author, texts in motion. They circulated throughout China together with their copiers and readers, sent down youth during the Cultural Revolution, and often followed characters who were likewise moving, spies, scientists traveling within and beyond China. Moreover, the text itself was just as unstable as its readers and characters were mobile. Frequent copying resulted in the proliferation of multiple versions of any given narrative, thus troubling the clear-cut distinction between readers and authors. Henningsen's careful survey of Shou Ben and related book forms, including the so-called internal publications, sketches out a lively and cosmopolitan reading culture. In the book, she shows that despite assumptions of cultural insularity and uniformity, paying attention to the reading acts of the Cultural Revolution show that the long 1970s are not an abrupt, anomalous rupture in Chinese literary history, but a period that can be more fruitfully described in terms of continuities. So please join me for a conversation with Lena in exploring the rich archive of Shou Chaoben. Before we give the ground to Lena, though, I will introduce her. Um, So she is currently uh, working at uh, Oxford as an academic visitor, um, but she is more generally a scholar of modern Chinese literature and culture. She's currently the PI in a European research grant-funded project called The Politics of Reading in the People's Republic of China, and will begin a second five-year project on comics culture in the PRC in 2024. And this is also how I met Lena, so I look forward to hearing more about that. Between 2012 and 2022, she held a fixed-term professorship at Freiburg University after being an assistant professor at the University of Heidelberg. Um, She was also invited as a visiting professor to UBC this March, so we've had her on our shores in North America. Uh, Welcome, Lena. Thank you for having me, Julia. Well, let's start by hearing a little bit more about how you came to be a scholar of modern Chinese literature. What brought you to the study of the Cultural Revolution, and what is your lineage um, as an you know intellectual uh, of China? Yeah, that's a very broad, uh, rather intimate question, but I'm happy to answer. Um, I'm very interested in literature because that is my has always been my passion and my interest. And when I got into Chinese studies, I thought that uh, this is going to be my, yeah, as you said, maybe lineage. However, the the broad um, line of my research, I would say, is in popular literature. So I started off with a dissertation on popular literature of the 2000s. And um, from that, I've been moving backward in time to the Cultural Revolution. Um, that has two reasons. One reason is that even if after studying Chinese for so long, um, I still 
would not really feel comfortable in making statements about the quality of the great avant-gardist uh, literature in Chinese language, because I still feel, well, you'll never get there um, if you haven't grown up with this language. Uh, the other reason for me to go into popular literature is uh, one um, that, that I'm um, completely, um, I can get passionate about it because I feel that uh, if we do research about a country like China or any other country, it matters what people have actually been reading or what people are actually reading as, at a given point in time. And Therefore, I'm less interested in what the critics say, but in what people are actually reading. And that drives my interest into you know, looking at bestseller lists, looking into what the CCP propagated at certain points in time, and also what large pe amounts of people read at certain points in time, either following the propaganda of the CCP or sometimes uh, going against the grain of the mainstream. So a quick follow-up before we get into the meat of the book. You mentioned to me before that the title of the book is a bit dry. That was an editorial decision that you did not have um, control over. What title would you have preferred? Let's pretend for our readers that the book gets a new title. <laughs> I'm very happy you dropped that in the introduction to this um, podcast. Uh, I felt Texts in Motion would be um, a very fitting title. It, of course, does not tie the book to the cultural revolution, um, but it ties it very much to what these, what is the core of the matter, what is the core that these texts are about. Uh, and this is, yes, they circulated throughout China. They circulated with the people who were associated with them because uh, somebody would write down this book handing it over to a friend who then would go maybe to the neighboring village or to another province, taking along a manuscript, in the course of time then rewriting it, copying it out. And that's how um, these um, manuscripts traveled, how they were consumed, um, how they were kept alive, and how also they were changed. And, and that is what I found very interesting. And that's why this sort of this aspect of motion, this aspect of travel, um, is connected to the text and also the practices that are connected to these texts. Okay, so here we are talking about the new book, Texts in Motion. <laughs> um, <laughs> before we talk about the book um, in chapter by chapter, uh, I want to hear a little bit more about the funding mechanisms that you have available to you and that you have availed yourself of in Europe, um, because my sense is that you relied on these to develop um, the book project. And I think that listeners in North America, especially, may be quite unfamiliar with um, what European researchers are doing in this vein. Um, I, I at least would appreciate learning a little bit more about how a research project that brings together multiple scholars works and how it results in publications. Mm -hmm. Okay, that is uh, um, another big question. Uh, thank you. Um, so I've been funded for the past five years, and luckily I'm going to be funded for another five years by the European Research Council. Um, given that they fund me so generously, I'm a big fan of them, of course, but even if they would not fund myself, I think the, the funding schemes that they offer are really very good. In particular, uh, so they, they, it goes across all fields. Sciences can get as much money as humanities. Um, and these Funding schemes, they go by seniority depending how how long you're away from your PhD. So you're eligible for different schemes. But the basic idea is 
um, they look at um, your past record. Are you a, a good scholar that they believe will do this project that you propose? And then you come with a project idea that is well grounded and well researched and is, is going is, is promising um, to bring new insights. And they also um, are interested in funding what they call high risk, high gain projects. Um, so, and that's why I think popular culture topics have a good chance, because if you go into these sort of depths, you are relying on, on many, many external factors. And yes, things can go wrong. You very often find out different things than you write into your proposal. But I mean, that's what it is about. Um, so that is basically um, what uh, the ERC funds and if you if you talk about the order of these projects, um, I've been working with a team of four people plus the art research assistant over the past years and will continue to do that in the next five years. And I can only say that I personally find that uh, the ideal way to do research because, of course, I like to sit in my room and read books and I also like to sit in my room and write books. Um, but I find I'm, I personally am much more productive when I have interlocutors and people who are, have a similar, a shared uh, research interest. Um, and um, this is not me supervising PhD students and postdocs. Yes, it is also, but we share. And that's the core idea how, how I run the team and where I think that everybody benefits a lot. Uh, and we just, yeah. We read our chapters and we tear them apart and then try to put them back together in a better way. Wonderful. It sounds like research in Europe is less of a lonely project than it is in the United States often. <laughs> <But> it can be. <laughs> um, okay, so with that out of the way, let's talk about the book. The term Reading Act is not addressed in detail until the sixth chapter, but I wanted to lead with it because having chatted and collaborated with you in the past months, um, that word emerges as a quite important theoretical definition. Um, what is a Reading Act and why should we pay attention to it? So a Reading Act marks the act of uh, interaction with a text um, very often this text is written in words, but it can also be uh, a work of art. It can also be a piece of music. And we take interaction rather broadly. Um, it is, of course, what we commonly associate as reading. So you take a book, you read it. But we also include into this that you may discuss this with a friend. You may share a book with somebody else. Um, and that is something that's core to the cultural revolutionary practices when access to libraries was not possible, um, people would would share their reading materials um, with each other. Um, I haven't come across it though, but um, even using the, the the a page from a book as toilet paper by this definition might be called a reading act in a very broad sense, um, because uh, yeah, it's a it's not necessarily a common interaction. Um, but uh, we might include it. And um, the core thing about the Reading Act is, and that's not so much when we talk about toilet paper, uh, we talk about meaning creation, meaning attribution, and uh, the fact that uh, a Reading Act has, um, has a meaning for the individual who reads, but also for a larger group of people or for society, society at large. 
And that, of course, is, is true if we think about the, how people interacted with the works of Mao. Likewise, you could say an, an entire generation has been brought up with Harry Potter, um, and, and that has an impact on, on, on larger processes. Um, that, which leads me really into my next question, which is, you know, entertainment fiction, as we can attest Harry Potter is. Um, so you later in the book, you call this potentially, quote, negative cultural capital, right? Popular fiction. When I hear you say that entertainment fiction is significant and meaningful, um, you're preaching to the choir. But there is a reticence in Chinese studies, especially Chinese literary studies, to tackle the lowbrow. Why? How does the study of entertainment fiction intervene into kind of these canonical narratives that we come up with when we are students of Chinese literature? I mean, I see, I see changes that, um, that, that um, this so-called lowbrow literature is beginning to have its place. Um, and I, I don't want to play out one against the other um, because China would not be what it is if it hadn't been for Lu Xun or the Dream of Red Chambers, which are high bro, yet at the same time very popular, and Lu Xun has been popular for a whole lot of reasons inside his texts and outside of his texts, but that is a different chapter. Um, so I think that um, <clears throat> um, we really need to look at both, and we need to... Um, Always, um, yeah, this negative cultural capital uh, argument, um, uh, I think, is is has to do with maybe what researchers may think, um, but it has has also to do what the intellectual field, the larger intellectual field, thinks about. Um, we have looked at autobiographical sources from the Cultural Revolution to see, yeah, okay, what was it that people actually read. And so we found out, okay, uh, Jack Kerouac was read a lot, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe not surprisingly, that was a book that was one of these internal publications that you meant. So they were not accessible to people. But with the rustication movement, people took these texts along and they just read them, they shared them. And if you if you think about Balzac and the Little Chinese Simstress, that is a fictional text, but it illustrates very vividly what this was about. This is all high avant-gardist, or at least what we would consider high uh, European modern literature. Um, so after we had looked at these autobiographical sources, I was just wondering how can it be that uh, I know about the massive circulation numbers of the entertainment fiction, but people don't talk about it. And clearly, if you if you bring it up in a conversation, people will say, sure, yes, sure, I read that. Uh, I read that. Uh, but um, it doesn't fit with the self-image of an intellectual, so you may not put that into your autobiography. So this is not to say pe people did not read these works, but later on they would not ascribe them, these texts, this importance that um, they may have had for other people. And for other people... They may have been very, very important, um, yet these are not the people who write autobiographies and, and publish them in whatever format. Um, I start the book with an anecdote um, of, a, of a good friend who lived in the Cultural Revolution. He, she just she saw I was reading this book, and she just said, "Lena, you know, because of that book, I studied chemistry." So she was in, so she was inspired 
to study chemistry on account of reading uh, a piece of handwritten entertainment fiction. And that clearly tells you something. Um, it mattered. It mattered greatly to people. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, as we write our memoirs, let's make sure to mention the popular entertainment that mattered to us. Um, so in that vein, can you give us a sense of just how entertaining these books could be? What is the wildest story that you came uh, across? I am personally quite intrigued by the popularity of spy fiction. Yeah, I mean, that is one thing, before I give you the story, maybe that is one thing that we tend to forget. Spy fiction was popular in China through the 1920s, 30s, and even into the early PSC times. So um, you're not alone. We all like uh, the thrill of the forbidden, uh, looking into how spies might look uh, and how they may work. Um, some of the, the stories um, are have moments of being slightly hilarious that you realize, yes, well, we later on get an explanation for it in the plot. It does not seem quite plausible. Um, maybe I give you the plot of uh, one of the pieces um, that became very popular again once more after the Cultural Revolution because it turned to being the first bestseller on the publishing market after the end of the Cultural Revolution, and that's The Second Handshake. This is actually the story that my that moved my friend to becoming a chemist. Um, and um, this is a triangular love story. So here we have the first element that is clearly out of tune with mainstream cultural revolutionary fiction. Um, love has to come after the revolution has been achieved. But here we have a love story and it's a triangular one. So we have this guy and two ladies. Uh, he has been promised as a child to marry the, the daughter of a friend of his father's, but later on he meets another young young woman and madly falls in love with her. Um, they are then separated by the turmoils of history, to make it short. Uh, she ends up in America and um, he remains in, in, in China. In the end, he does uh, get married to this... Uh, promised uh, the, the the young woman he was promised to even though when they got married um they were not that young anymore and he became a happy father and things then get tumultuous again when the other lady returns from the u.s the second the second um thing you would not imagine in a mainstream novel of the cultural revolution is that the three figures are scientists we have a um, uh, one of them is a chemist one of them is a physicist she actually then in the US participates in the development of the atom bomb and um, one is a, I think she's a she's a, she's a, she's in medicine yeah, so that's the other thing uh, you would not have main characters who are intellectuals and uh, even more who are um, scientists in the cultural revolution um, and the third thing that then happens in this story, which was clearly out of tune with the time, is that um, on the one hand, you see many elements that are similar in socialist realist fiction. And at the clim climax of the story, uh, when everybody's in the same room and you kind of feel, okay, chaos may be imminent, um, somebody enters with a letter by Joe and Lai, which then 
solves everything um, and everybody can live happy, happily ever after. So this happy ending is kind of hilarious. But then the other thing is this letter came from, from Do and Lai. It did not come from Mao Zedong. By standard socialist realist practice, we would have had to have Mao in this uh, scene or at least a letter dispatched by him. And that is what, in the end, got the author into trouble, um, what ended, um, made him end up in prison for a number of years. And he only was released in early 1979, all the time facing the death penalty. So you see in this um, how, how this entertainment fiction is clearly uh, related to matters of life and death for the people who, who were involved and who practiced this. Absolutely. And um, it seems like the, the character of this physicist who goes to America might be inspired by the real life figure, right, of Wu Jianxiong, right, who was a Chinese female physicist who worked on the Manhattan Project, <laughs> right? Um, so a little bit of intermixing between reality and fiction there. As far as I know, she didn't have such a romantic love story or a deus ex machina from Zhou Enlai <laughs> in her life. Yeah, plus, plus this story is also inspired clearly by the life story of the author's uncle. Yeah, so in a in a very sort of uh, vague uh, um, thing. Great. Um, so that was an original story, but your study isn't limited to this original material material and its copies or rewritings. You also explore um, another type of uh, publishing archive, the nebu or the internal p- fiction, um, not just fiction actually, um, just both fiction and nonfiction. So what are these nebu publications, and how do readers in the seventies encounter these texts? What do they mean for folks who are, you know, perhaps sent down? Just one step back. Um, I mentioned it before, uh, these internal publications, they were internal. What does internal mean? Um, they included translations and original Chinese works. Um, they included fiction and nonfiction alike, and they are part of a larger system. So I'm talking about books, but it's part of a larger system that also had internal journals, magazines, etc., etc., and even they would dub movies um, from foreign countries. And um, access uh, to these materials could be gained uh, by party membership. And um, depending on the, on the, on the topic, um, there was more or less, um, more or less copies Uh, printed and access would be given to people according to their position within the party hierarchy so while some things might be circulating rather widely widely others were really confined to to only the top party members Uh, with the rustication movement the internal part of it entirely broke down Um, rusticated youth before they went to the countryside they simply went to, in many cases, they went to their parents' bookshelves and took what they could find, which might be earlier publications, but which clearly also was the internal publications. Being marked internal, of course, um, makes them all the more intriguing and, and, and thrilling and interesting to read. And so they would enter into the same circuits that the entertainment fiction that I write about, mainly in the book, um, was circulating in, um, and so they make up what I what I would call this reading cosmos of the era that then includes stuff written at the time, but that also includes 
these internal publications, which are um, yeah sometimes uh, contemporary works, but often things translated into Chinese uh, during the 1960s and 70s. Um, <clears throat> absolutely. And as far as I remember, I think you said that the fiction had yellow covers. So they also had this uh, very visual marker, right? That this exciting book um, potentially forbidden. Uh, and it gives access to Chinese readers to different types of cosmopolitan experiences, right? So what type of cosmopolitanism emerges in your study of these unofficial reading practices? One of your interlocutors here is, of course, Nikolai Voland. Um, so perhaps listeners can guess that socialist cosmopolitanism, the name of his book, um, plays a role. But what other imaginations of the world do you find in this 1970s reading cosmos? Mm -hmm. um, so... It is important to really begin with a socialist reading cosmos um, that encompasses a lot of what Nico Folland writes about in his book. Um, it also encompasses uh, things like the quotations by Mao Zedong, which in our sources were read by many. Um, however, being read by many does not necessarily mean being liked by many. So, for example, shooting um, the... Um, Misty Poet, uh, or one sort of from this group of Misty Poets, um, she mentions uh, reading some stuff, uh, I think explanations on Mao Zedong's works, and mentions uh, that, yeah, okay, she, she read it with, not with great joy, and forgot most, of, most about it instantly, if I remember it correctly. Um, so that doesn't say anything about the qualitative um, the quality of the reading act, uh, but simply about the quantity. Um, so that is that is the, the very wide socialist cosmopolitanism, and that of of course includes socialist classics also from from Russia, from the Soviet Union. Then I have um, sort of teased out or, or come up with uh, what I call an academic cosmopolitanism, because in particular. Um, uh, so, so both on the side of these reading acts in autobiographical sources, and also if we look at a number of the pieces of entertainment fiction, um, there's a lot of dialogue uh, um, of the protagonists with foreign uh, researchers, with foreign scientists, with foreign intellectuals. So for that, I would encompass the, the sort of a broad um, academic cosmopolitanism, which to me... It means something, an, an inspiration on the part of people in the wider academic sphere uh, to be connected to the rest of the world and to be part of it. Um, and then the third thing um, to me relates to a type of avogadistic cosmopolitanism uh, and, and that, has, that contains a lot of poetry um, and that has, of course, to do with the fact that many of uh, the autobiographies, autobiographies that we have in the sample are written by people involved with the Misty poetry later on. And, of course, they, they naturally are driven very much to, to poetry and would read a lot of um, avant-gardistic poetry and um, modernist um, uh, European Western literature. Um, 
so so far we've focused a bit more on distant reading, right? Even a question about this cosmopolitanism is a sort of distant reading question. Um, but let's get some of the materials that you approach in terms of close reading analysis. I was particularly intrigued by your uh, analysis of polyphonic form. Um, how does the exchange of poetry uh, complicate our reading of a novel? We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Okay. Um, so this the idea of the polyphonic form um, is something that I haven't invented, of course. Um, but uh, people like um, Bonnie McDougall, who have written about um, Beidou's Waves, uh, which is the only, to my knowledge, um, piece of Shochaba and Venture that has been translated into foreign languages. So there's a German, there's an English um, edition, and it's it's really a book worth reading. So I recommend that to everybody who wants to read one novel about the 1970s. I recommend you go for that. That is a a, a novel um, that is very polyphonic because we have a number of first-person narrators and they switch um, to the service of the reader, um, uh, at least in the translations, uh, they are named so you know, okay, now you get a section written from the perspective of this person and now from another. And that gives you, of course, that draws you into the inner worlds of a, a lot of people. And um, I had a closer look at um, another piece of Shotab and Wenshua. Um, open, I translated as Open Love Letters, um, which is an epistolary novel. So we see letters circulating among the protagonists, and it's not only the two main protagonists' letters that we get to read, but uh, also of uh, a number of minor um, characters uh, that creates a similar um, effect and it also ties in to actual world practices, reading practices of the Cultural Revolution because letters, uh, while they may be written on the one hand as something private that you share with a friend or a family member, they were not as private as we might assume them to be. You would constantly expect them to be intercepted by the officials. So certain things might be dangerous to put into a letter. And um, at the same time, um, these letters were openly shared. So you might get a letter from your friend and simply send it on to somebody else if you think that is an interesting piece of writing, or you might quote from it, etc. And that is practices that happen throughout the novel. And um, in this novel, if you only have a look at the letters, they are rather more matter-of-factly. Um, we again have a triangular love story. In this case, there's one girl and two um, two guys. Um, again, one of the protagonists is a scientist. Um, so that is, again, something that, that sets it very much apart from the espionage um, 
focused novels. And um, coming back to the, the polyphonic uh, structure of this text, um, the letters are interspersed with poems that the protagonists write each other. And while their letters are very much, yeah, kind of lettery, I don't know uh, how you may expect a letter to be, that you tell the other what has happened in your life and you hint a bit at the voice that you have, but the, the, the poems really, they are the outpouring of emotions and these, emo these, these poems also are most outrightly critical of what it is happening. So, for example, you have the image of the sun, light and darkness that are everywhere in these poems and that clearly re rewrite the official, uh, let's call it a Dong Fang Hung, Uh, imagery, the, the east is red and Mao Zedong is the sun and he shines across everything. Indeed, poetry plays an important role uh, in the book, your book, as well as these manuscripts that circulated, but also um, it circulated by itself, which readers can also learn more about from reading your book. Um, but as we're winding down a little bit, getting towards the um, latter portion of our interview, I want to zoom out and ask a question about sources. Can you tell your listeners more about, for example, the index of Nebu Publishing that you cite? This seems like a really interesting um, type of source. And have you encountered original copies of such books in your research? Um, and if so, how do you find those? How do you get your hands on some Nebu or Shoutao? Okay. Um, the index is available in Heidelberg Library. So um, that's pretty straightforward. You just go to Heidelberg. Got just it. go to Heidelberg. Heidelberg is always worth a visit. Um, I mean, it's always worth a visit and the library is great. Um, so um, that is that is what we used for that. Um, and uh, I have not um, got my sort of, I, I have not done a, a study on the internal publications as such, like, yeah, but you can sometimes find them on, on um, platforms like Kung Fu Zhuang. Um, and that is also where I got almost all my um, primary sources. Um, you go and type search um, terms, in my case, uh, uh, cultural evolutionary Shoutauben, um, and uh, that is actually also a very helpful tool to, to familiarize yourself and to get an overview. Um, there were certain Shoutauben that were hilariously expensive, um, and I decided I don't want to use all of my research book on just research budget on just this one book. So that, of course, puts a certain bias into my sources. But I try. What I did is. Um, get an overview of the various different titles that there are and then of certain titles that I gathered were interesting to what I was um, uh, yeah, doing in writing. I got multiple copies because I was interested in changes across different versions of the stories. Um, and that was quite, for that purpose, for, for us, number of the Shotab and I, I bought multiple copies. Um, yeah, and I mean, it's, it's not always easy to get them to Europe um, because sometimes 
uh, yeah, posting uh, is not not as easy. Uh, I think that everybody has experienced these things. You just need to be patient. And I don't advise anybody to do that if you are writing your BA thesis, because you will likely have your research material delivered two weeks after your due date. So for that, uh, it's it's more important um, to lo- look out for sources that you have in your local library or you get through interlibrary loan within the system that you that you work in. Uh, hopefully Heidelberg allows an interlibrary loan of this um, index. Although, I, of course, I'm joking. Um, I, and I anticipate that there are many universities in the States that also have it. Um, but what a, what a resource, what a wonderful resource to find um, new research topics. Uh, so in the later part of your book, you also turn to adaptations of Shotelben fiction in other media formats and after the Cultural Revolution itself. As you've mentioned already, uh, some of these books were published even in foreign languages, Beidaos especially. Um, the other media formats, however, film and Lianhuanghua are quite interesting to me. Can you tell us more about these multimedial afterlives? And, you know, an unofficial film is kind of a tall order for 1970s China. I don't think people were making them. But did you encounter any unofficial Lianhuanghua, like Shou Chao Ben, that are Lianhuanghua, or at least any illustrations in Shou Chao Ben fiction, or kind of the circulation of images as well? Um, so this is a double no. I'm not aware of any movie because I think that just, yeah, we didn't have smartphones back then. So I mean, the, probably smartphones would have made for a very different cultural revolutionary experience. Um, I have not um, looked out for visual sources that were copied and circulated. So I simply have no clue about that. And most of the copies that I came across um, are written down in a haste in very, sometimes very illegible handwriting. So for that, I, I have to thank my my research assistants who help decipher and transcribe these texts. Um, and with, yeah, the, the, the this is a manuscript, but if we talk to other manuscript studies people, these are the people working with Bibles from five, six, seven hundred years ago, or even older, and of course that's um, a very different way of uh, producing uh, material. That's yeah, but sometimes we do have the same issues. Um, so there's very little um, illustrations. Uh, well, I have come across none. There's a few photo um, um, and that I have access to that are written very nicely and with great care, and we know that there were uh, some photo and copiers even into the late 70s and the early 80s, who just enjoyed writing down stories they liked in nice handwriting, and they they really took it as a calligraphic practice. And then you sometimes have, for example, um, uh, Western alphabetical handwriting as a... It's sort of an informative, yet at the same time also decorative uh, element, but... In the sample that I've been working with, this is really the the, the exception. <clears throat> but maybe for the comics project, um, uh, I'll follow up on that thread and see whether things were... Because, I mean, we have all these comic artists. They were still there in the Cultural Revolution. Only most of them uh, did not uh, did not publish. Uh, or if they... if I mean, if they draw some something, maybe they were more into copying out posters... Um, and that, of course, is a much more fragile um, uh, publication. Well, not 
fragile, fragile material then. Uh, it, indeed, it might be a little bit harder to copy also a comic book if you aren't skilled with um, drawing, but I look forward to finding out if any comics did circulate. I'm sure something did. I'm sure there were some some comics that were floating around and um, you'll, you'll find them. Um, so for readers who want to learn more about Shou Ben, I recommend reading the book. But now I want to hear more about the comics project. Um, I know that you edited a volume on reading Lian Huanghua uh, because I submitted a chapter for that. So can you tell us a little bit more about that first? Sorry about this shameless plug of my own research, um, but I think it's a good way to introduce readers to a potentially another new book, but also to this new project that you're working on. Yes. So uh, as you see, I, I said earlier that I'm interested in popular forms of literature and um, I, I, I think that comics in many ways are can be considered a form, form of very popular literature. Um, I came across a statement that said in 1986, one in three books published in the PRC was a comic. Um, I'm not sure that <clears throat> uh, this is really true, but it tells us something about the vastness of the phenomenon. Um, comics could be used uh, for readers who were not fully literate, who children or or other uh, groups of the population beyond the intellectuals. And um, movies were adapted when movies were not accessible to broad audiences of the people. Literature was adapted, uh, making big novels accessible to people um, who did not have so much time uh, or uh, reading capacities, uh, reading capacities in terms of uh, uh, being alphabetized. Um, so this is really a vast um, amount, a vast, um, how to say, vast area of uh, popular literature. And that's why I believe um, it is very important that we um, take more, put more uh, attention on these phenomena um, that's sort of the the the, the basic idea was um, yeah let's find about find out more about this and it also grew out of uh, the Read China project uh, for the simple fact I've been stumbling across comics for the past five years yeah I did something uh, in the Shoutaoban book because I realized that the Shoutaoban are then transformed into comics and it is really a transformation that it, it's an adaptation it's a transformation when you put a novel into images yeah you set different emphasis and you have to significantly shorten it down um yeah because there's only such an amount of panels that you can do um and that makes of course a big change uh, to the product and it also impacts on how people would read this story um, and that's why I wanted to go into it. And I will work on adaptations, but we will also look into um, the political constraints that comic artists were um, working under. Um, we will also look at contemporary comic art um, to see how yeah things have changed very much after the end of the Mao era or maybe after the end of the 1980s. Yeah, and just... I forget if we said this explicitly throughout the interview, but anytime we say the word Lian Huanghua, we are indeed talking about comics. Um, so for readers who are curious to see, uh, for listeners who are curious to become readers of, of these comics, um, Lena, one of 
your contributions to, uh, I don't know, the kind of pedagogical materials that are available now to Chinese studies is in fact a translation of one of these types of little booklets called Little Smarty Travels to the Future. And that is available on the MCLC uh, Culture, um, Modern Chinese... Modern Chinese Literature and Culture. Yes, on, on, on the resource uh, blog uh, there. And I believe you, you did that translation with your students, which just sounds yes. like a wonderful project. Yeah. Um, I, can, can I add on that? Um, so if you Google Read China, you will find our homepage. So let's also do a bit of shameless bragging. Um, we have a comic section on that homepage as well, where A, um, we have published another three. And then there's also on that homepage, there's also links to other translations of comics, such as the Star Wars um, that Nick Stember did. It, there's also, um, you, Julia, you also did a comics translation. You get all the links and you also get a bibliography on comics, which is anything but um, anything but um, complete. But as a sort of first entry into the field, um, listeners may, might find that useful. Okay, I'll make sure to include the name of that website in the description for this podcast episode so that listeners can indeed look it up. Um, so thank you so much for your time today. I don't want to take up any more, but I do encourage our listeners to take a look at your book, to take a look at the work that you have published um, and your group has published on this website. Um, and I look forward to talking to you about your new book, which hopefully will be coming out soon. Um, perhaps uh, it will be a conflict of interest, so I'll have to ask one of the other hosts to host if my chapter is uh, included. Um, but we look forward to hearing more about that. And meanwhile, thank you to all our listeners um, for tuning into this episode. Join us next time to learn more about new, new books in Chinese studies. Thank you. Thank you for having me and thank you for listening. <laughs>